And 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we'll be. We'll close out chapter number 2. There's a lot of great verses here. And so I've struggled with how to, to convey the big idea without losing the significance of these very weighty and powerful verses. And with God's help, I hope to be able to do that this morning. But we're looking at this passage of, of small letter of First Peter. And it's really a letter written by an old fisherman, written by Peter. And he talks about hope. And that's why we've given the theme title, Encouragement Through God's Enabling. Hope is a beautiful gift from God. Webster defines hope this way. Listen to it. Desire accompanied by expectation. To desire with expectation of obtainment. To expect with confidence. You see the expectation? Even Webster understood it to be that of the idea of hope. See, vital, vital is this matter of hope. Without hope, prisoners will languish and die. Without hope, addicts go back to their stronghold of substance. Without hope, marriage partners end up in divorce. Without hope, we find in the, or rather we miss the meaning of life. And hope isn't just a nice option that helps us temporarily clear a hurdle. Hope is essential to our survival. And realizing hope's vital role in our life, I'm thrilled to find one of the best resources of hope is found in this little book towards the end of the New Testament written by this old fisherman, Peter. He knew the subject well at a time in his life where he had failed miserably. And he was struggling to find significance once again in his life at a critical moment. He found hope. And he's trying to get across to the church in ages to come. How we too can discover hope. So here it is. First Peter. It's a book for all who sincerely search for a life filled with hope. When your life hurts and when your dreams fade. You have every reason, as long as God is alive, to have hope. First Peter chapter 2. I want us to read our text, and, and then the trio will sing again. And, and I'm going to read this to you, and, and you stand with me, please. Let's go ahead and stand, and, and you read along with me. And I'm going to highlight some, some phrases here that I think will be significant to us getting a hold of this. These are phrases... I remember memorizing this passage that we're going to read, 1 Peter 2, verse 13 through 25. I remember memorizing these about 25, 26, 27 years ago. And it's not until just recently these phrases that I'm going to mention to you to underline, to highlight, really stood out as being the key, the glue that holds these together. But let's begin our reading in verse 13. If you're going to highlight, mark, make note, and I do in my Bible, verse 13, the very first word, submit. Amen. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. And for years I lost the next phrase, for the Lord's sake. So you should emphasize here, highlight, submit, and for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The other phrase you want to emphasize, highlight verse 15, the will of God, the will of God. Verse 16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as, and here's another to highlight, as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, 
Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God, highlight toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongly, wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is, highlight this phrase, acceptable with God. Verse 21, for even hereunto, here's another phrase, were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin? Neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead should live unto righteousness, uh, but, uh, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop that's Jesus of your souls. Uh, what a tremendous, powerful passage. This morning, we're going to look at radical Christianity. This is radical. And I dare say you're not going to get this on the news, any news station, any news uh, pundit. No, no right-wing conservative is going to give you this kind of radical Christianity. No left, loose, woke liberal is going to give you this kind of radical Christianity. You want to talk about radical? Peter's getting ready to lay it out for us. Listen to the trio and we'll come back to it. Well, Peter says the same thing. What Brother Cherry gave us in the worship challenge was much of what Peter is also giving us. One thing that's encouraging is we see how they're dovetailing together. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been ripped off before? I take it you have. Have you ever bought a lemon of a used car? Yeah, I have too. Have you ever purchased a 1995 gadget from an infomercial only to receive a cheap Plastic item worth about 85 cents. Yeah. Yeah. Who hasn't fallen for the charm of a slick salesman with perfectly styled hair and fancy shoes? Who hasn't been misled by some flashy advertisements and ripped off at some point or another? It, you know it works or they wouldn't run those infomercials all the time. Yet we can recover relatively easily and quickly from scams like those. However, experiencing abuse or victimization can be extremely difficult to handle, especially when it becomes personal. That includes situations where someone slanders our reputation, causes financial loss, or even threatens our lives. It's already challenging enough to deal with our own errors and stupid choices and mistakes, but it feels sometimes unbearable to face the outcomes of something that was not our fault or something that we did not deserve. Listen, if you've ever been in this situation that I've just described, you're in good biblical company, if you've ever been treated like that. David was ripped off by Saul. Esau was duped by Jacob. Joseph was mistreated by his brothers, and Job was victimized by the Sabians and the Chaldeans. As a young shepherd, remember David killed Goliath, and he helped uh, rout the Philistine enemy. And after that, David became extremely and overwhelmingly popular among the people. He also became the object of King Saul's rage. David had only done good for Saul and the people of God. So the people appropriately sang about David and gave praises saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands 
1 Samuel 18 and verse 7. And that popular song, it sent Saul into such a revengeful rage against a young hero that for more than a decade, David ran for his life while Saul hunted and haunted him. David didn't deserve that, but it happened anyway. How about Joseph? He didn't ask to be his father's favorite, but when Jacob showed favoritism to his youngest son, Joseph's brothers, in a moment of absolute hatred, sold him into slavery. Although Joseph triumphed over his circumstances, his brothers initially deeply ripped him off. Earlier, Joseph's father, Jacob, he cheated his own brother Esau out of his birthright. Admittedly, Esau was rash, he was irresponsible, but Jacob took advantage of his brother in a very vulnerable moment. And what about the, the good, godly man, Job? According to the Bible, he was a perfect, mature, upright. He was a man of integrity. He was blameless, and he had taken unfair advantage of no one. But because Satan used Job as a guinea pig, Job lost all his land, all his servants, all his possessions, and above all, all his ten children. While God ultimately used all these circumstances for the believer's good and his honor, initially all of these men could have stopped somewhere in that journey of years and said, what's happening? This is unfair. I don't deserve this. And so while we may be in good company, and misery does love company, company doesn't alleviate the pain of unfair treatment. This morning, I want us to look at these verses, and I want to preach the message I've entitled, Finding Hope Beyond Unfairness. Finding Hope Beyond Unfairness, or Continuing despite being cheated, continuing despite being cheated. I want you to see a few things this morning. Number one, I want us to see what natural reactions we often give to unfair treatment. We've all been treated unfairly, that's the point. We've all been cheated and ripped off and slighted. And there are some natural reactions to unfair treatment. And I, I think we respond in three common knee-jerk reactions when we're treated unfairly. The first is an aggressive pattern. We blame others. When we're treated unfairly, we've been wrong. We have a tendency to blame others. That's the aggressive pattern. This reaction only focuses on the other person who wronged us and keeps track of their offenses, but it also it devises ways to retaliate. <clears throat> this reaction says, I'm not getting mad. I'm just going to get even. In the process, the aggression grows from simple anger all the way to rage. Resentment is like a seed that grows into a desire for revenge. This process, it nurtures bitterness and it can take hold of hearts very quickly. If left unchecked, it can lead us to seek revenge against anyone who's wronged us. It's like the, the fellow that was bitten by a dog and later he was told by his physician, yes, indeed, you do have rabies. So upon hearing this, the patient immediately pulled out a pad and pencil began to write. Well, the doctor was thinking that this man's making out of a will for these last days. And he, and he said to his patient, listen, this matter of having rabies doesn't mean you're going to die. There is a cure for rabies. The man said, oh, I know that. I'm just making a list of people that I'm going to bite. <laughs> Few of you might be making lists of people that you'll bite the next time you get a chance. Maybe some of you are already engaged in doing so. Listen, the blame game may temporarily satisfy an aggressive inner itch but it doesn't lead to a lasting solution. 
It's a very small wonder that God says in Romans 12, 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So there's an aggressive pattern, blame others. But there's also a passive pattern, and that is when you're ripped off and slighted, you feel sorry for yourself. We throw a pity party. Complaining to anyone who will lend a sympathetic ear will whine and say, life isn't fair. You don't know what I have to go through. But if we wallow in this sloth of despondency too long, we become depressed, immobile, living the balance of life with the shades drawn and the doors locked. Like quicksand, feeling sorry for ourselves, it'll suck you under so fast. Though you may be holding back, there's a lot of anger in that passive pattern as well. And a lot of people live not lashing out and not giving people a piece of their mind, but they live passively, feeling sorry for themselves. And you give in to this temptation, I can assure you this, you will be vulnerable to anything and everybody going forward. Reminds me of some fellows in the military who were stationed in Korea during the Korean War. While they were there, they hired a local boy to cook and clean for them. And being a a bunch of jokesters, these guys took advantage of this boy's very naive demeanor. They'd smear Vaseline on the stove handle so that when he turned the stove on in the morning, he'd get grease all over his fingers. They'd put little water buckets over the door so that he would experience, experience a deluge when he would open up the door. They'd even nail his shoes to the floor during the night. And day after day, this little fellow took the brunt of their practical jokes without ever saying anything. No blame, no self-pity, no temper tantrums. And finally, these soldiers felt guilty about what they were doing. So they sat down with the young Korean and they said, <clears throat> Look, we know these pranks are not funny anymore. And we're sorry. We're never going to take advantage of you again. It seemed to be too good to be true to this house boy. And and he said, no more sticky on the stove? And they said, nope. He said, no more water on the door? And they said, nope. He said, no more nail shoes to the floor? They said, nope, never again. Okay. The boy said with a smile, and no more spit in your soup. (laughs) The point is, even in a passive mode, you can still spit in somebody's soup. But then there's another pattern, it's the holding pattern. That is, we postpone or we deny our feelings. We might call this the Scarlet O'Hara Syndrome. Anyone ever heard of that? The Scarlet O'Hara Syndrome. It's the I'll think about it tomorrow. Because Scarlet's famous line, which she said several times was, I'll think about it tomorrow. After all, tomorrow is another day. Well, that is the Scarlet Syndrome. Putting off till tomorrow, which we can and should do today. Every boiling issue is left in this holding pattern to just simmer on the back burner over a low flame. On the surface, all seems calm. Doesn't bother me. But underneath, our feelings seethe, eating away like acid. This failure to deal with the problem head on, it only leads to doubt and disillusionment and it weakens the fiber of our lives. And furthermore, it's physically unhealthy to sustain feelings of resentment. Listen, if it's an offense that is worth having, in other words, if you're treating it like an offense on the outside, you need to treat it like it's an offense on the outside and deal with it. I don't know if I said it right. If you're treating it as an offense on the inside, 
You need to deal with it as an offense on the outside. So don't put it on the back burner and say it doesn't bother me. But while it's there, it's simmering. 20 years later, it comes up at a family reunion or Christmas get-together with family. And all these 20 years, you've been saying it's not a big deal. It's not an issue, but it's just been on the back burner. I want to tell you, a lot of good people in good churches in the South have lived lives just like that. And they've masked it with, bless your heart. I think Brother Glenn addressed that. If it's an offense that you have on the inside and deal with it as an offense on the outside. How's that? Deal with it. Don't dwell on it. Don't, don't uh, linger. Leave it. Deal with it. So then let's go number two. There's an alternative that honors God. There's an alternative that honors God. In verse 13 through 17, Peter gives us an alternative. You don't have to have the, um, this, this blaming others by an aggressive pattern. You don't have to have a passive pattern, feel sorry for yourself. And you don't have to be in a holding pattern that you postpone or deny our feelings. But number two, Peter gives us, verse 13 through 17, an alternative that honors God. Although very common, none of these actions, these three that we've mentioned, you'll find in Peter's letters. When he teaches how to have hope despite unfairness. Instead, you can find and expect the alternative reaction, which is radical. So let's just jump in. I want you to see the command that Peter gives. Notice in verse 13 and 14. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. It's important to understand the historical context of the command that he's given. What's the command? Submit. Submit. He doesn't say blame. He doesn't say wallow in self-pity. And he doesn't say put it on the back burner and just let it seethe until there's an appropriate time. No, he says submit. Now remember the historical context. The Roman Empire throughout which the readers of Peter's letter were scattered, they were not part of a very kind and generous monarchy. The readership of Peter's letter was under a dictatorship ruled by the insane demagogue Nero, who is especially notorious for his wickedness and his cruelty to Christians. There's never been a leader in all of American history that would be as cruel as what the Christians faced here in this first century. Many of the believers who received Peter's letter had suffered severe persecution. The bodies of their friends and loved ones had bloodied the sand of the Roman Colosseum. Their corpses were soaked in oil. They were lit as, they, as lanterns. Their bodies, the martyrs of God's people, became lanterns, physical, real lanterns for the stadium. So it was altogether natural and fitting that Peter would address the subject of unfair treatment. These believers had been the target of the grossest mistreatment by their government, their fellow citizens, their neighbors, and some of them by their own family. Should these Christians pick up arms and resist a government with such a leader at the helm? Peter says, no. Incredibly, Amid all this, Peter has the audacity to say, submit. Get this. God does not promote anarchy. God does not promote anarchy. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two twenty one, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Paul exhorts us to pray and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, for those in authority over us, nowhere in Scripture is overt insurrection against the government ever recommended. You've got to get this. 
The believer was not put on earth to overthrow governments. But to establish in the human heart a kingdom not of this world. There may be instances, of course, when we must stand our ground, stand firm, and disobey a particular law that is, that is disobedient to the law of God. We should not buckle under by compromising our convictions or renouncing our faith. But those are the exceptions, not the standard rule. Whenever possible, what does Peter say? Verse 13 and verse number 14. He's telling us the same thing that we've heard. Render unto Caesar the coin of civil obedience. Pray for those in authority. Pay our taxes. Obey the laws of the land. Live honorably under the domain of earthly elected leaders. See, the way to live honorably, Peter says, is submit. You know, the Greek word is hupotasso. It's a military term. It means to fall in rank under an authority. And that Greek word, submit, is two compound words. Tasso meaning to appoint, order, or arrange. Hupo meaning to place under or to subordinate. See, the, the reason I, I'm laboring on that is because it's easy to dismiss this and make passages like this fitting to us that would be convenient to us. But the construction conveys the idea of subjecting oneself or placing oneself under another's authority. This recognition of existing authority coupled with a willingness to set aside one's own personal desires shows a deep dependency upon God. You see, the submission to authority is not only in respect to God, the foremost human authority, but to lesser officials such as kings, governors, law officers, and teachers. I'm convinced that if we were good students of submission, we would have a whole lot better quality of life. Again, we're not going to find this on conservative talk shows. But that's why we're looking at the authority of the Word of God. I'm convinced that the one thing more than any other that works against our very nature is our lack of submission. I don't want to submit. I don't want to give in. I'm not going to let him have his way in my life. And so we live abrasively instead. Let's get something very clear. Our problem is not understanding what submission means. Our problem is doing what it says. Because submission is difficult. Because it is difficult. I think we need to look at the reason behind Peter's command. Why would he say when he knew what they were going through, when he knew that God's people were being ripped off, treated unfairly, why would he say that? He tells us why, verse 15. For so is the will of God. That with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The Greek word translated silence here, it means to close the mouth with a muzzle. You see, Christians in the first century were the targets of all kinds of slanderous rumors. They were being called a sect. They were people of another kingdom. They were following another lesser God, small g. They have plans to overthrow us. And throughout the Roman Empire, people gossiped about their secret meetings, their submersive, uh, uh, subversive ideologies, loyalty to another kingdom, plans to infiltrate, indoctrinate, and lead to an insurrection. But this kind of paranoia was common all the way up to Nero himself. And so Peter says, I want to tell you, you are as God's people, peculiar people. Remember, we, we saw that people who belong to God. You ought to put a muzzle on those who are speaking wrong against you. And so Peter said the way to put a muzzle on people's mouths spitefully, gossiping and slandering and even persecuting he said, is by submission. 
by submitting, Peter said, by doing right before God. You would muzzle the mouths of those passing around rumors by submitting to civil authority. We muzzle any rumors that we're just a maverick group and that we do as we please. We gain nothing by rebelling against civic authorities, but we lose in so many ways when we do rebel. Here's the principle. The principle is found in verse 16 and 17. As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. See, the principle is we must keep the right perspective on the principle here. We do not submit because we necessarily agree. We do not submit because deep within we support all the rules and the codes and the regulations. We do not submit because our candidate won. Sometimes what we're being told, what we're being summoned to do may seem petty, annoying, terribly restrictive, and even prejudicial. According to verse 15, we submit because it's the will of God. It's the will of God. And, verse 16, because we're bond slaves servants of God. That's why. That's why you don't hear this on conservative radio. That's why the leading conservatives are not going to mention this. That's why as intelligent as a Rush Limbaugh might have been, you would not hear this advice because this is radical Christianity. Can you see now how the principle comes to the surface, verse 16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God? He says... Do not use or abuse grace so that your freedom becomes a cloak for evil. So in little staccato bursts, Peter gives us several commands in verse 16 and 17. Act as free men, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And wrapped around the commands is this main principle. What is it? The main principle is don't use your liberty for a cloak of selfish maliciousness, for a covering for evil. We must forever be aware of the temptation to abuse liberty. It's easy to stretch it and make it work for ourselves rather than giving glory to God. So in verse 18... 18 through 21, we see an example. And the example that is given to us. Notice in verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. Verse 19, for this is thankworthy of a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. To fully understand Peter's statement, we need to comprehend the nature of slavery. Not 150 years ago, but 2,000 years ago. William Barclay, one commentator of old that I enjoy looking to, especially in terms of giving some historical things, William Barclay provides some historical context. In the time of the early church, there were in the Roman Empire as many as 60 million slaves. Now, I had to look that up because I thought, did they even have that many people upon earth? And they did. But their slaves were by no means only doing menial tasks, which we think of slaves performing, but they were also doctors and teachers, musicians, actors, secretaries, stewards, and so on. See, slaves did all the work in Rome. The Roman attitude was, there's no point in being a master of the world and doing one's own work. Let the slaves do that and let the citizens live in pampered idleness. The supply of slaves would never run out. Slaves were not allowed to marry. 
They cohabited and the children born of a partner was the property of the master, not of the parents. Just as lambs born to the sheep belong to the owner of the flock, not to the sheep. It would be wrong to think, however, that a lot of these slaves were unhappy all the time and they were treated with cruelty because many slaves were loved and they were trusted family members. But one great inescapable fact dominated the whole situation. And that is in Roman law, a slave was not a person, but a thing. A slave had no legal rights whatsoever. So for that reason, there could never be justice where a slave was concerned. Never. In that first century, a slave had to follow his master's will, his master's whims, because that was the only law. So when Peter addressed slaves, he advised them to be submissive to their masters. Some slaves who became Christians may have thought that their faith gave them a right to stand up against their masters. But under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, Peter stated, that's not so. Centuries later, listen, Christians pervaded the culture centuries later and they overcame slavery, but it didn't happen in the first century which is a good lesson for us regarding God's timing versus our timing. Even when it comes to adversity, unfairness, being ripped off and cheated. While God commands us to be salt and light and thus bring about justice and change in our culture, His ultimate priority is changing the individual human heart. Now, it's difficult for us in America to read some of these verses. As, as I keep saying, our frame of reference is so different, so Western, so 21st century that we sometimes try to rewrite God's word to make it fit us. We can't do that. We must let it speak for itself. Well, this is good, Peter, as long as you have a good master. It's wonderful if you're working for some marvelous saint-like boss. Then everything's cool. You're happy to submit. But what if your taskmaster fits the description in the last part of the verse as he's talking about uh, someone who is trying to, to do you wrong? What if you work for those who are unreasonable? Do you have an uncaring boss? Do you have a supervisor or a manager who is not fair? Do you have to deal with unreasonable people? You may not want to hear this today, but there's a lot of truth for you in verse 18 and verse 19, none of which will ever again appear in your local newspaper or on a television or radio talk show. The natural tendency of the human heart is to fight back against unfair and unreasonable treatment. But Peter's point is that seeking revenge for unjust suffering can signify self-appointed lordship over one's own affairs. Revenge then is totally inappropriate for one who is submitting to the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ. Christians must stand in contrast to those around us in the world. This includes a difference in attitude and in focus. What should our attitude be? What should our attitude be? Verse 18, submission, submission. What's our focus? Verse 19, for this is thankworthy of a man for conscience. Say the next two words, toward God. Our attitude is submissive, submission. Our focus is toward God. Look what they did to me. No, no, look at what you're supposed to be doing towards your God. You do this. They don't deserve it. We're not talking about them. We're talking about your God. Submit. That's toward God. How is this change of attitude and focus? How does God view this? Verse 20. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is, what's the next three words? 
acceptable with God. In other words, you submit because you're doing it towards God, you're going to find favor with God. See, our focus then should not be consumed with getting the raise at the office, but with getting the praise from our God. It should not be getting the glory for ourselves, but giving the glory to God. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, Peter is saying, but if when ye do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, you're going to find favor with God. The contrast, I think, is very eloquent. He's saying there's no credit due to a person suffering from what he has coming to him. Listen, if you break into a house and steal, you'll be arrested and incarcerated. Unless you're living in New York City, Chicago, center. But in most places. And if you patiently endure your jail sentence, no one's going to think you're a wonderful human being for being such a good and patient prisoner, you probably will not get elected citizen of the year just because you served your time like you're supposed to. That's what Peter's saying. But if you are a hardworking, faithful employee, diligent, honest, productive, prompt, caring, working for a boss who is belligerent, stubborn, short-sighted, ungrateful, and if you patiently endure that situation, aha, that finds favor with your God. How do you want to live? With favor from God or without His favor? I told you this wasn't information generally embraced by the public. You know, the phrase acceptable in verse 20, you want to know another word? The same Greek word is translated into another word grace. Grace. So when you endure, you put grace on display. See, it's easy to sing amazing grace. We don't want to display it though, do we? We want to sing about it because of what it does for us. God says, I want you to live it because I want other people to know what it can do for them. And when you put grace on display for the glory of God, Peter's saying you can revolutionize your workplace or any other situation. Now, can you see why the Christian philosophy is radical? We don't work for the credit, prestige, salary, or the perks. We work for the glory of God in whatever we do. The purpose of the believer in society is to bring glory and honor to the name of Christ, not to be treated well, to have life to be easy, or even to be happy as wonderful as these things are. Again, this is not promoted in today's workplace. Notice 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called. In other words, he says you're called for this purpose. Here's the purpose. Here's the reason you're at your company. Here's the reason you're at your place of employment. That's the reason because this is the will of God. You're called to display the grace of Almighty God. How? Through submission to those that may not deserve it, but because it's the will of God and you're doing it towards Him and for Him so that God can get into their life. That's the reason you're filling that role. That's the reason these things are happening unto you. Why? So that you might follow in the same steps of the Lord Jesus, listen, who suffered for us. That's what he says, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called. Why? Why am I going through this? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Now, at the beginning of the message, I deliberately left off the list in that list of biblical examples, the greatest example of all. Because I wanted to mention him here. No one was ever more ripped off than our Savior. Absolutely no one. Jesus of Nazareth was the only perfect man who ever lived, yet he suffered continually during his brief life on this planet. He was misunderstood. He was maligned, hated, arrested, tortured, and finally crucified. And Peter says, we're to walk in the steps of Jesus. Verse 21, second part. 
that ye should follow his steps. Verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. In these verses, Peter shifts from an example of unfair treatment to the example we should follow. From that of a servant to that of the Savior. John Henry Jowett writes of Jesus' perfection. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but he gives such an eloquent description of the perfection of Jesus. The sinless Christ. Still, they mocked him. They bruised him. They beat him. They crucified him. And Peter tells us he is our example. And that is saying something. Consider Christ's focus. What was Jesus' focus? At the end of verse 23, he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. In other words, Jesus kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. As an example, so that you, when you're going through unfair treatment, you can commit yourself to the one who always judges righteously. That's a good thing to do throughout our day. When you're going through a difficult time, say, Lord, this is a hard moment for me. I'm having a tough time today. Here I am again, dealing with this unreasonable person, this person who's treating me unfairly. Lord, help me. I entrust myself to you. I give you my struggle. Protect me. Provide the wisdom, the self-control I need. Help me during this time to do the right thing. We must understand that the purpose of Jesus' suffering, it differed from ours. I know there comes a point where subjection to certain situations can become unwise and unhealthy. I recognize that. There's no argument coming from me on this. But most of us don't get anywhere near that. We're so quick to defend ourselves. We are a fight back generation. We know our lawyer's phone numbers better than the scripture, scripture verses dealing with self-restraint. We're quick to respond through social media posts rather than get desperate and seek God in prayer. We're quick to get mad. We're quick to fight back. We're quick to answer back. We're quick to threaten a lawsuit. Don't you dare step across that line. I've got my rights. Everybody's clamoring for their rights. Except Jesus. When was the last time you deliberately, for the glory of Christ, took it on the chin, turned the other cheek, kept your mouth shut, gave him all the glory. Let me give you this last third thought. There's a benefit that accompanies this kind of obedience. Notice in verse 25. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You know what Peter gave us in these short verses? A glimpse of Jesus on the cross. I want to say staring in horror at the cross, you can't help but become dizzy from a swarm of questions. I read it over and again, and I come up with questions like why? Why should this innocent man endure such unjust suffering? Why? Why should we? Why shouldn't we resist the thorns and the lash we're forced to bear? Why should we submit to the hammer blows, the piercing nails, the cross of unjust suffering? Because it causes us to return to our Savior for protection rather than defend ourselves or fight for our rights in independence from God. See, what God is saying is, there's a big picture. And when you get this, I'm going to fight back mentality, it divorces us many times from the leadership and relationship with God. See, that kind of reaction becomes such a part of our lifestyle and culture, we don't even realize it when we react that way. We don't even recognize that we should be different from those around us. By the way, See the words in verse 24? 
by whose stripes ye were healed. See that at the end of verse 24? By whose stripes ye were healed. Talk about a vivid painting of pictures with these words. Peter had seen firsthand the yoke of unjust suffering placed upon Jesus' shoulders. No doubt he's remembering. No doubt he can recall as though it happened clearly yesterday. The moment he saw the master's bruised, bleeding body staggering along the narrow streets of Jerusalem on the way to Golgotha. As he remembered the scene, he says, Peter says, by these stripes we're healed. Let me ask you, are you feeling the splinters of some cross of unjust suffering in your life? Has a friend betrayed you? Has an employer impaled you? Has a disaster dropped on your life that's almost too great to bear? If so, don't fight back. Unjust suffering can be a dizzying experience. To keep your balance when things are swirling around you, it's important to find a fixed reference And focus on it. Return to the protection, the guardianship of the good shepherd Jesus who endured the cross and laid down his life for you. It was because David refused to take vengeance on King Saul that we remember that story to this day. We admire Joseph to this day because he was so willing to forgive his brothers. And it's because Job did not waver in his faith despite all those unfair calamities that we're still impressed with Job to this day. So let me ask you, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered by others? How do you want to be remembered by God? If you want to be dismissed, avoided, forgotten, disapproved by God, then live consumed. Live self-consumed. Live with the blame game. Self-pity. Keep fighting back. Get even. Stay angry. But if you want to be remembered, admired, rewarded, and favored by God, continue trusting despite being cheated. Press on even though you've been ripped off. Stand with me, please.